Hi there, it's episode 109, and today I'm talking with Nicole from the Kavanaugh Report. We're chatting about why it's important to make a home child-friendly rather than child-proof. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A-style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, it's Danae. Welcome to episode 109. Today, we are wrapping up the month of May and the Love Where You Live experiment. All month, we've been talking about making our homes and our communities places that we really love to be. And we're continuing that conversation today, talking about how to create a home that not only the adults love to be in, but the children also love to be in too. Before we dive into the episode, I want to give you a quick word from today's sponsor. Usually my sponsorship spots are 60 seconds, but this one might be a little bit longer because I really just can't quit talking about this company. The sponsor for today's episode is PrepDish. PrepDish is a meal planning service. Surely you've heard of these meal planning services, so hear me out on this one. I was convinced that this sort of thing would never work for me, and I never gave it a chance. So when PrepDish approached me and asked me to try it, I said, okay, I'll try it, not expecting to like it, not expecting any kind of life-changing experience. But I was wrong. This is definitely the best thing that's happened to my family this spring. So each week, I get a meal plan. It's a list of four meals, a snack, a salad, and a breakfast. You have three choices between paleo, gluten-free, and a quick and easy option. I've been doing the gluten-free option, and it's almost mostly dairy-free as well. There is an option to leave the dairy out, and it's really easy to do that. So the meal plan comes in three parts. The first part is the grocery list. The second part is prep day, and the third part is dish day. So let me give a rundown of what this looks like for me. I order my groceries online, so I pop up two windows. I have my grocery list from prep dish, and I have my list from Peapod, which is where I order my groceries from. I literally go through the list and add everything to my Peapod account, click order, have it delivered to my house on Saturday morning. It takes about 10 minutes. Then Saturday night is prep day in our family. I chose Saturday night because usually my husband and I are just sitting around vegging, not really doing anything productive anyways. And it's turned out to be a really fun activity for us to do together. Prior to this, I was doing 100% of the cooking in our house, and being able to include him in this prep day has really helped me to feel a lot more supported, particularly because he can't get home early enough during the week to help me prepare meals. So Saturday night, we spend about an hour and a half together prepping the meals for the week. And then everything's ready. So from then on out, the meals on dish day, that's part three, take about 10 minutes to prepare. Totally easy and approachable to do with kids who are in their witching hour or who are otherwise just preoccupied and not wanting to be present with you in the kitchen. Okay, I'll stop babbling about this because like I said, I have been telling everyone about this. So I could talk about it forever and ever because it's been such a really welcome change in our house. It's helped us completely cut back on processed foods. It's helped us cut back on takeout. PrepDish is giving the Simple Families audience two weeks free. So try it. Let me know how it goes. I want to know if you love it as much as I do. You can go to PrepDish.com forward slash families, and that's all lowercase. And there you can get your two weeks of free meal planning. Again, that's PrepDish.com forward slash families. Finally, back to today's episode. I'm excited to be chatting with Nicole Kavanaugh from the Kavanaugh Report. If you're not familiar with Nicole, Nicole is a Montessori blogger. Now, I've talked a little bit about Montessori on the blog and on the podcast before. Montessori very heavily influences the way that I have arranged my home for my children and the way that my husband and I parent our children. 
A Montessori home is very thoughtfully arranged so that the children are able to participate and be active parts of the family. That means that the house is made to be child-friendly rather than child-proof. So that's what Nicole and I are talking about today. How do we welcome children into our homes? How do we welcome them into our lives and to include them and to make them a part of what we're doing? If you have questions or comments, you can leave those in the show notes. Go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 109. Here's the episode. Hi, Nicole. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Danae. It's good to have you. So this month, Nicole, we're talking about loving where we live. And when we are creating a home that we really love to be in, it's important that we consider our kids. And I wanted to talk with you because I know that you have a home that you have been very intentional about as far as your kids, intentional about setting it up so that your kids feel comfortable and your kids can really be a part of family life. And I want to hear more about that. So could you start just by telling us a little bit about your family? Sure. Uh, My name is Nicole. I'm married to my husband, Morgan. Uh, We have three children together. Henry is seven and Nora is almost four. And Gus is our baby and he is 17 months. So sort of five of us and a couple of dogs living um, in Minnesota. Great. And you, uh, tell us about your blog, The Kavanaugh Report. Yes. So I blog about Montessori parenting um, on The Kavanaugh Report. And I basically just share our journey with Montessori and how we sort of incorporate Montessori principles into our life, not from a like sort of educational learning standpoint, but more from like a parenting and living sort of um, direction. So I love your work, Nicole, because this, a lot of what you write about and photograph in your life resonates with me. And I don't talk a lot about Montessori on my blog or on my podcast, but Montessori does impact and influence not only the way that we arrange our home, but also the way that we parent. And I think that there's something about Montessori for people who are not familiar with Montessori or people who don't have a kid in Montessori school that it can be an idea that can be a little intimidating if you don't understand it. It totally can be. It it sort of um, feels very like it's that weird preschool in town and I know it exists, um, but it's it's not for me or it's, it's just school. Um, but really Montessori in, is an education for life, we sort of say. And so it starts when you're, you can start when you're an infant and sort of all the way through your life. And it's something that guides your principles in, in making decisions with parenting and making decisions with um, how you set up your spaces so that your kids can really thrive um, in your home. So to give you a little background, Nicole, of my family, so we found when we lived in Dallas, we just moved to New York last summer, um, but in Dallas, we lived across the street, basically, from an amazing Montessori school, and when I had my my son, who's now four and a half, when he was born, I was looking around for mother, like mommy me type classes. And this Montessori school offered classes that were really cheap. They were like half the price of everywhere else. And I thought to myself, I was like, all right, I'll give it a try. I didn't know anything about Montessori, even though I was finishing my PhD in child development. Never did we really discuss Montessori in any of my classes or any of my coursework. So I was really coming in blindly. And we, so we registered for this eight week parent child course. My son was eight weeks, he was eight weeks old at the time, he was two months. And we 
fell in love. My husband and I both, my husband took him one week and he walked into the rooms and he said, wow. He's like, how can we do this at home? It's so calm. The kids are so engaged. It's just a space that you want to spend time in. And I come from a background and a lifelong battle with clutter. And my husband has sort of fought that battle with me as a part of living with me and being in my life. So really Montessori inspired our journey into minimalism and wanting to create a space in our home that we really love to be in and a space that our kids really love to be in. That's so funny because it's sort of the exact same for us. And um, I found Montessori on the internet, which I think a lot of people these days, especially in sort of our Pinterest culture, um, find Montessori on the internet. Um, And I just fell in love. I fell in love with every aspect of, of uh, Montessori focuses on this deep respect for the child. And that respect comes through not only how we interact with the child, but how we create a space um, in our home for our children. And so the more I've learned about Montessori, the more I feel myself pulled to minimalism. And my husband is a total minimalist. Like from the moment I've known him, he literally would sit in an empty room. You know, he could have like a bed and like four shirts and be like totally fine for his entire life. Me, I, I, I struggle. Um, I like things and I come from a house that my parents' house is probably the opposite of minimalism and um, every space needs to be filled. And so it's, it's definitely been a struggle to pull back from that to create spaces um, that really fit the developmental needs of our children, which is what Montessori um, sort of tries to do, is to create a space where your child um, has an environment that's not overly cluttered because that way your child can focus and do what they want to do. And so the more I've tried to do that, the more we've, we've sort of become minimalists over time. And, um, and, and so it's been this, this wonderful journey for us. It's definitely not been an overnight switch. When I think about creating a kid-friendly space, I think about when I going back to when I was registering for my first baby, and I was looking at all, all the things, which if you are registering at Bye Bye Baby or those type of places, you're overwhelmed with options. And there were so many, and I knew right away that I wanted to pick things that weren't overly sort of quote-unquote babyish. So I didn't really want a plastic high chair with like tropical patterns all over it. I just prefer things that kind of fit into our decor in our home a little bit more naturally. So I wanted to have a house that was child-friendly, but wasn't super kid-ish. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And so um, I did not find out uh, anything about Montessori. I discovered Montessori when my son was, my oldest son was a year old. And so we had all of the things. Um, We had that high chair that probably had some sort of like giant tropical bird on it. Um, and all, and all of those things. And in Montessori, we really, um, are focusing on beauty and we're focusing on accessibility and we're focusing on order. And so when you think about those principles, picking things in your home that have a giant, you know, pattern or, or wildness or sort of bright, it's not that they're bad. It's just that, they distract from what is otherwise really important work for children. And it's the work, if you use the high chair example, it's the work of eating. And if we're going to give them sort of a space where they can't do it independently or learn to do it independently, um, we sort of are taking away something from them. And 
choosing uh, materials that are a little less loud sort of puts that in more of a tool category. You know, it's, it's not the centerpiece. The centerpiece is your child, if that makes sense. It does. And it's funny because I've noticed, not just in the home, but across the board, that the way that our kids are prevented or presented with everything child oriented is often so overwhelming. So this week, my son watched an episode of Gumby. Are you familiar with Gumby, like from the 50s? Like that clay character, an old school cartoon? I am. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I watched them when I was a kid, maybe. Yeah, I definitely did. So he watched an episode of that and I was sort of taken aback by it because it was so slow. I mean, they literally like roll out with dough every character and just very slow and intentional and simple, the character on a white screen. And I think back to the 50s when kids absolutely loved that. And that was the norm for entertainment for children and that's how we really were oriented towards children was presenting presenting them with a low level of stimulation that they could handle and they could absorb. But now everything has gotten so busy and so overstimulating, whether it's television or the high chair, whatever it might be. It's true. And, and that stimulation comes at a cost, I think. And that cost is often concentration and focus and, um, not sort of telling your child that this thing is the center of our life, um, because that's what your child is going to see. You walk into the room, I think back to like when Henry was a baby, um, you know, we had a jumperoo thing, you know, where it, they'd sit in it and bounce and, you know, it's got lights and it's got sounds and it's got a million things it does. And that becomes the focus of their life. You know, they, they're not looking at you. They're not watching you, um, they're sucked into these electronic beeping um, toys. And so that sort of becomes the focus of your space. And the and um, we just sort of want to shift that focus back away from the stuff and back to the human um, and back to what your child needs at that point in their development. Right. And in the first year of life, the research shows us that from a sensory perspective, children are really only able to absorb material through one sense at a time. So when they're seeing lights and they're hearing music and they're feeling vibration all at the same time, that's three senses. (laughs) And that's a lot for a kid who really only should be focusing on one sense at a time. So rather than stimulating three senses all through the same device really just focusing on looking at something or listening to something or feeling something and trying to isolate those sensations really gives our kids a better sense of calm and a better ability to focus in that first year for sure. Right. And so Montessori goes maybe one step beyond that and just let your child be attracted to something in your space and choose for themselves whether or not they are going to be developing their their sense of, you know, sight or their sense of touch or, or their sound, let them take sort of the lead there and choose, um, what it is that they're going to focus on instead of sort of putting them in something or giving them something, we're sort of giving them the freedom and the time to, um, discover that for themselves. And we do that through sort of preparing our space and and having those options available. So there's a a very significant child-led aspect of Montessori, which is something that guides the principles, right? Yes. So Montessori is completely child-led. So in Montessori, the child 
and the environment and the adult sort of all are working together um, towards the child's goals. And the child is at the center of that. So the child is, is given the freedom to work on whatever aspect of their development that they're feeling um, that they need to work on at this time. And so we, that's sort of an odd concept. We think, well, a child can't determine what they need. We know what they need. Um, but we sort of put our trust in the child that naturally the child is going to um, choose a material or choose a toy or choose something that they need to work on some skill that they're working on. So a great example is language. We don't need to teach a baby how to talk. Um, in most cases, babies just pick it up as they listen. So they're in this sort of, um, they have this ability to sort of work on what they need. And they, they pick that from the environment and they internalize it and they learn it. And so um, we, we, as the adults, prepare the space that gives them the freedom to work on whatever they're being driven to work on in that moment. Right. And it's actually kind of cool to watch in practice, because if you think about this principle, this child-led principle and how kids really seek out what they need, and then you watch your kid play, you can sort of see where they're at developmentally. It makes me think about my daughter. So with both of my kids, we have tried not to buckle them into their high chairs and into their strollers and instead letting them get in and out Um, And so my daughter, from the time that they're able to, so my daughter was a really early walker and she was getting in and out of her wood high chair. We have a kikaroo, which is kind of like the stocky, sort of the old school wood high chairs. Um, She was able to climb in and out starting around 13 months. So around 13 months, we stopped buckling her in and she started getting herself in and getting herself out and she would do it all day long. And that was just something she was working on. She was working on those climbing skills. She was working on the sitting skills and the balance. And if I hadn't known that and I hadn't thought about that, I probably would have been like, what is this crazy baby doing? Like getting in and out of her high chair a hundred times a day. (laughs) That's exactly it. And my son Gus is um, just 17 months. And so he is at that phase now. Um, And it's up and down, up and down, up and down, sit on your chair, get down, sit on your chair, get down. And so to an outsider, it definitely looks like what is your child doing? And even to a person who's familiar with Montessori, I'm not going to lie, it's kind of maddening sometimes. You're like, just pick a toy and play with it. But um, no, they, they want, they need to work on this specific developmental skill. And so they have what we call, we call a, a sort of pull, um, to doing whatever that developmental skill or, or a goal that they have, um, they sort of have a pull to that. And if you let them do it till they sort of master it, then they sort of seem to magically one day let it go and then they do it. And so it's, it's often doing a practical task. It's often, um, not playing with toys, especially as a young toddler, like 13, 14, you know, months, um, even to a year and a half, it's, it's often, you know, opening and shutting a door in your house. It's, it's, um, pulling open that drawer where you keep your dish rags and pulling them out one by one. And, um, it can be kind of difficult to, to, to watch that, to sit back and observe, but it's often because they're filling some need that, that they have. 
Right. And actually just yesterday, my son who is four and a half now was outside drawing with chalk and I was watching him and he decided he was going to draw the letter T like a million times all the way down the driveway. And I was thinking about that from a developmental perspective. And back in episode 93 of the podcast, I talked with Carla Hannaford, who um, is a biologist and a child development expert. And she talked with us a lot about bilateral integration. Are you familiar with bilateral integration and crossing the midline? I am familiar enough to know that it exists, but nothing else. <laughs> okay, so basically that kids will seek out activities that integrate the left side and the right side of their brain. And a lot of that is moving their hand back and forth across their body in the in different types of motions, whether it's drawing or dancing or playing. Um, and it's just a really necessary aspect of child development. And as I saw my son sort of drawing those T's, that's what I was thinking of, that he maybe that this is something that he's continued to, continuing to work on, that integrating the left side and the right side of the brain, because when you're drawing a T with sidewalk chalk really big, you're crossing over your body. Um, so I think that if I had been a little bit more parent-led, I might have said, well, let's draw some other letters or let's draw some other things. But it was really important to him to be drawing T's all the way across the driveway. And so he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Maria Montessori said the secret of perfection is repetition or something. I might have misquoted her there, but something similar to that, um, that children really need to be able to have the freedom to repeat, 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 repeat. And then once they've perfected whatever it is that they're working on, um, they stop and they can stop and they can move on. And they not only do they move on, they move on with this incredible incredible sense of joy. And that's really, um, it's not about Montessori parenting is not about, you know, creating these like super geniuses who work on their development all the time. You know, it's the joy and, and the absolute love that these children have for being able to follow their own interests and their own sort of developmental path that sort of keeps me at least personally invested in the method because it, it, it creates this you know, sense of pride in them and joy that, that I, I didn't see as a sort of more traditional parent. Right. And I think that there's a lot of pressure these days as parents to really do everything and be everywhere for our kids. And there's something really freeing about Montessori to know that the goal in the home, if you're using Montessori principles in the home, is to prepare the environment for your kids, is to set up a home that your kids can be comfortable and be engaged in. And then they really take over from there. Would you agree with that? Yes. And so um, sometimes we see this like Montessori means create all this stuff or buy all these fancy toys and and it really doesn't. Um, it means prepare a space where your children have the freedom to play or work, whatever you call it. In Montessori, we call it sort of work, but that just means play. Um, to play freely and, and follow their own interests. And so it's creating a space and how do you make your space accessible to do that? How do you make your space um, safe for them to be able to, where you don't feel like you have to say, no, don't, that, that, that. And, um, and making a space where they can just be um, without the distraction of all of this sort of extra stimulus. So could you tell us a little bit about what that looks like in your home. Do your kids go to Montessori school or are you homeschooling? And what does the space look like? So my kids, um, 
two of them go to Montessori school. My older son is in a public Montessori. We're fortunate enough to have those here in Minnesota. And so he goes to a public school that is a Montessori school. And um, he's in what we call lower elementary now, which is a first through third grade classroom. In Montessori schools, we use mixed ages. And so he's in the lower elementary. And then my daughter um, is almost four. And so she is in what we call a children's house, uh, which is basically sort of preschool through kindergarten age mixed together. It's three through six. And she's at a private school right now. And so she goes to that, uh, to a Montessori. And then my youngest is home with me. So I don't have, if you are familiar at all with Montessori education, some people sort of think like pink tower, it's like a, a, a 10 blocks that go from one centimeter to 10 centimeters um, that you stack or like sort of more the math work or sort of more traditional education materials. That's not what our house is about. It's not about accumulating sort of Montessori educational materials. Our house has mostly um, traditional toys um, that are Montessori friendly. And so there's a whole list of things that that people can argue about whether or not they are Montessori friendly or not. But they're they're toys that help um, promote some interest in my child that we've seen. And so it's just sort of set up a little bit differently than you would a traditional um, play space or play environment. And for non-play spaces, things you'll see in my home are like just tiny changes. It's really not a big deal. It's a chair sitting by the front door that my child can sit in to put on their shoes independently. Or it's a little low hook where my child can hang their coat. Um, it's just little tricks and tips to make your home accessible so that your children can perf perform whatever they want to do sort of independently and have access to practical activities. Yes, I completely agree. Now, in our home, we have a mirror low in our kitchen so that our kids can hop up after dinner and check their faces to see if they're a mess. And it's funny how many questions I get from people that come to our house. They're like, why do you have that mirror there? <laughs> but then I tell them and I explain it and they're like, oh, wow, that makes sense. And it's definitely a Montessori concept that I picked up on at my son's school. Um, but it's it, those little things make such a difference. Having little bits of accessibility for kids, it empowers them and it gives them a certain independence that they wouldn't have if we had to lift them up in the bathroom and show them their face in the mirror. Right. And so one of the bonus of that is if you have a toddler or a younger child who's sort of in that no phase, um, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. You don't have to ask them. Um, so it sort of takes that that power struggle out of it a lot of the time. And you get this much calmer child as a result. Um, it's not a continuous fight like we need to wash your face now. Like, come come with me. Let me lift you up and let me do it for you. It's I wonder if there's anything on your face. Would you like to go check? And, you know, and they have the ability to go right to the mirror and look and see. And then, you know, you could take it one step farther. Do they have access to maybe a small drawer in your kitchen where they can pull out um, a rag or something and wipe their own face? Yes. And those things sometimes take a little while to put in place or to get the hang of, but I don't necessarily think that they need to clutter up our house when we add these elements. Do you feel like Montessori has created clutter in your house or do you feel like it's removed clutter from your house? 
Montessori has 100%, probably more than that if we could have that, removed clutter from my house. So we went from very traditional parenting, um, very traditional, buy all of the things, have all of the things, and at the end of the day, you scoop it into a giant pile and toss it into a toy box, and you hope that tomorrow you have the energy to do it again. Into having a space where things are organized and there's fewer things available. Just we don't need to have a thousand things for your kid. Pick 10 things that are working on whatever your kids are working on at that moment and then um, sort of get rid of the rest or or put the rest. Sometimes people rotate uh, things out, having things available. Um, but it's really, you know, sort of up to each family how you want to create your space. And if you want it to be very minimalist, it's it works in Montessori. And for us, it works better um, the less stuff we have. And so the more I feel like my children's spaces are put together, the more I want to put together my own spaces. Um, and one important part of Montessori that we haven't talked about is sort of this, um, especially for younger children, is what we call an absorbent mind. Um, children are continuously absorbing. That means like just being in our homes, everything that's around them. So that what habits that we set for them, they are absorbing that and then those become their habits. And so for us, it's been important to realizing that children do have this sort of superpower brain. Um, that we don't want them to absorb this clutter habit. Um, and so we work very consciously to have it be that we put things away or we have very few things, um, which is our goal and something we still struggle with, but we have fewer things out and around um, so that there is that order and there is that sense of putting things away in their place and, and having things sort of calmer around so that our children, it's more natural for them. Yes. And so Marie Kondo has a quote that says there's two types of people, the people who can't put things away and the people who can't throw things away. And I was both of those people. And that's why I needed to simplify my home. Um, when my son was born, I realized I was like, you know, I my my spaces are just a hot mess. I can't put things away. Nothing really has a place. So I it made it impossible to put things away and know where I put things. And being married, my husband found that really infuriating because he never knew where the scissors were. <laughs> um, and my mom would tell you the same thing growing up, that there's something about the scissors that I would always take the scissors and put them back somewhere in the wrong place or leave them somewhere. And that was something that I've always struggled with. And I still struggle with it today. And I found that the solution for me is not creating some elaborate organization system. It's really just decreasing the number of things that I have. As a result, those things have places that they actually go. So I know where to put them away and I make it really easy it makes it really easy to put them away. Because if I'm only cleaning up five things at the end of the day, I can handle that. But if it's 500 things, it's overwhelming. And I think that our kids feel that too, right? Definitely. And so one of the things I always encourage parents, if they're they're like, I don't understand what, how you say your children put things away. It's because it's very clear where it needs to be put away. So we have sort of an adage in Montessori that everything should be in its place and there should be a place for everything. And so we need to create that order and make that order really apparent for our children. It's not that we toss everything into a toy box and then we have to empty it all out to find what we need. It's, it's just putting maybe a small amount of toys in a basket on a shelf or 
for us, I'm, I'm right in my living room right now. So it's on our mantle. It's not even adding something to our, our existing space. It's just using what we have and choosing a couple of things that fit what our children need and then putting it available in like an organized way in a way that, that, um, it's immediately a, like, oh, they're immediately, um, aware of how it needs to be returned. It's funny because I reflect after learning all these things, I've reflected back on my childhood and I was always in the constant battle with my mom of go clean your room up until the time I was a teenager, the you're not going to the homecoming dance unless you clean your room um, type of mentality. And I, it's not that I was disobedient and that I didn't want to clean my room. I think that I just really didn't know how, like I would go up to my room and I would just be like, I don't even know where to start. Like, I had so much stuff that it didn't have a place. I ended up all going pushed into the closet and then ramming the closet door closed. <laughs> right. Or, or as like a sort of adult example of like a junk drawer where you're yes. like, well, I don't know where that goes. So let's just shove it in this drawer, shut it and hope that we don't need it again. And, and so um, it's eliminating that for your children. How do I, set up my space or create a space in my home that my children can clearly see the things that they have and see the order of where those things need to be so that they can restore it on their own. And so we also say that children have sort of called the sensitive period for order, um, which is just sort of a fancy way of saying that children are really attracted to order and order comes very easy to children between the ages of zero and six. And so we sort of think of toddlers and babies and even like preschool age children as being very disordered um, and very sort of uh, unable to clean and unable to keep their spaces organized. But if you put them in the right environment, or even if they're not in a, in a Montessori space, you can see order in a lot of ways. They're very disrupted when something different happens in their routine. That's a sense of order sort of calling them that they want to know exactly how things are supposed to be. Or you do one game with your child one time and then they want to play that game again the next time you have that object out. That's their order. This is how we use this object. Or they always know, you know, that um, I think of my oldest son when we were not in a Montessori space, you know, he'd come in and always point to that picture like, oh, there's the baby, the picture of the baby. And they remember that's where that goes. And if I was to take that picture and move it somewhere else, it would be very disruptive to him. Um, other things we see are like sort of lining up toys while they play um, or, or sort of creating matching games. I think sometimes you see that children will, if you just watch them play and don't direct, will maybe sort of put the red ball in the red box um, sort of naturally. That's their sense of order, like coming very strong. So if we create a space that allows them to sort of work with their natural sense of order, it's incredible how how they can like maintain that order on their own. So we just have to give them that structure and that's our job and their job is then to just be in the space and it's they really do um learn how and not even learn how they do maintain the order that's there. And not perfectly, they're still children, they're still toddlers. You know, my my son Gus is um, at the stage where he might put the basket back, but then forget to actually have put the toy in the basket, you know? So it's, it's a process. It, and, um, over time it, it really helps to cut down on that sort of chaos of having everything everywhere. Right. And this idea just brings us to be so aware that our children are much more capable than we, than we think. 
on so many levels. They are. They really are. And, you know, it's not our fault. I think as parents, we are sort of told that toddlers are dumb. And so, um, and maybe not dumb, but we're, we're told that everything is sort of unsafe for them. And, and this is our job and our role is to sort of direct everything that they're doing. And so in Montessori, we really flip that on its head and, and we're not, um, you know, giving a toddler everything, but we're, we're, providing opportunities through the preparation of our, you know, homes or spaces to do things for themselves. So it's, it's providing a low hook on your wall. Um, not so, you know, they can always just put their coat back by themselves. It's so that they can learn to put their coat on by themselves and they want to be able to do that. Or it's, you know, making a space in your kitchen and it doesn't have to be that you create or add anything. It could just be using a low cabinet that you already have in your kitchen and putting their bowls there so that your child can go and grab their own bowl when they want to have a snack. So it's, it's thinking about how can I make my space accessible so that my children can be independently successful. And putting trust in your child that it's possible. Um, it's possible for a two-year-old to cook on a hot stove. And I know that's like very different from a lot of um, sort of traditional parenting thoughts. But if children are given, you know, small amounts of independence over time, they really are so capable. So you mentioned safety and I want to talk a little bit about childproofing. So I have kind of a theory around childproofing. There are three types. So there's childproofing that prevents death. So like um, tying the furniture to the wall so it doesn't fall over and putting plugs in the outlets. And then there's preventing bumps and bruises. So that's like putting padding on the coffee table and around the fireplace. And then there's childproofing that prevents boundary setting. So that's putting a lock on your makeup drawer because you're tired of telling your daughter to stay out of your lipstick. Um, So I am curious what your thoughts are on childproofing and Montessori and your home. How do you childproof? So I'm a big believer that there is a sort of commercialization of safety products in the United States. Well, there's whole Um, businesses that exist just to childproof. (laughs) Exactly. And so I think parents are being sold this idea that our homes are inherently unsafe for children. And so I think we need to really recognize that as parents and think, is this something that is really unsafe for my child? And so for us, that's a pretty high standard. Um, We do not baby-proof most things in our home. Um, Right now we have, I think I have one set of stairs that I I don't super feel comfortable with young babies going up and down. Um, And we have a split-level home, so we have a lot of smaller staircases and then one larger one. And so there's a baby gate. I can think of that. Um, and I don't think we have a single other thing other than furniture. So, uh, we have furniture anchored to the wall and like our, our television up in our bedroom or, our you know, the like bigger, heavier pieces of furniture. But other than that, we don't use any baby proofing products. I can't think of a single other one because I think so many do fall into the categories you explained. So, um, you know, I don't really feel like if my kid falls and bumps their head, it's not worth the sort of lesson that they've learned to have put padding on that. Um, I think it's sort of 
companies playing on our fears as parents. I don't want to see my kid hurt. I don't want to see my baby cry. But I know that my child in the end is a lot safer learning that when I slip and bang my head on the floor or bang my head on something, um, that that hurts. And next time maybe they, they change their motion and they do it a little safer. It's sort of a natural consequence. And I think they're safer overall learning that because when they go outside, there's not that space that's baby proof or they go to a store or grandma's house or, or wherever that they're going. Um, there's sort of not that natural um, barrier there or unnatural barrier. And so they learn, they learn how to be safer um, in the end. And the thing is, it's, it's just convenience a lot of the time, right? Um, with baby proofing, like you said, it's stuff that, that prevents boundaries. It's locking your door in your kitchen because you don't want your kid to pull out all the pots and pans. And so for us as Montessorians, it's how can I prepare my space that provides some accessibility to my child? My child has a natural need to explore. I'm thinking of like a younger baby or toddler who's going to sort of crawl to your kitchen and pull out your pots and pans. How do I provide for that need? And often it's just leaving it available. And you might find that your child pulls it out for a couple of weeks and then never looks at it again. And so I often get questions of like, how do you keep Gus out of your cabinets? You know, he's 17 months old. You, you, you know, I see him open the stuff up or, you know, Nora's cooking in the kitchen and, and how do you keep Gus out of that stuff? He doesn't care anymore because he got sort of that exploration out of, he knows what's in that cabinet. He knows that there's pots in there. He's doesn't need a pot. So he goes on his business. So I think it, it's, temporarily more inconvenient. Yes, he went through a phase of pulling out those every day and I had to put them back in, but then it sort of passes, if that makes sense. It does. And in our house, we do similar things. So we have secured our furniture on the walls, um, but, and we, we put the, we covered the electrical outlets in the kids' bedrooms. But other than that, that's really all we did. And I wrote an article a couple years ago. I'll write, I'll put in the show notes, um, a case against childproofing. And I got a lot of pushback on that and people saying, well, if you have a coffee table that has sharp corners on it, why would you let your kid hurt? Why would you let your kid get hurt? Why would you take that risk of them like cutting their head open? And I agree with you that we can't protect them from all the risks all the time or even most of the time. My daughter has lots of bumps and bruises all the time. And no matter what I do, she's still going to get those somewhere. I think it's impossible to prevent them all. But I've seen a lot of glimpses of my kids being able to better manage their body in their spaces as a result of not having childproofing. So like the example of getting in and out of the high chair, right? Like that she, from the time she was 14 months, was sitting and balancing her body in the high chair and knowing that if she leaned over too far one way or the other, she would probably fall out. And she's climbed on that high chair so many times and she has never fallen because she has a very good sense of her body and space. Yeah, and so an important part of... of doing sort of baby proofing like this is not pushing your child to a, a level that they're not ready for. So if you're going to choose to not baby proof your cabinets, um, then don't keep your knives or your chemicals in a space where your child can um, access them. So it's about preparing for the level of independence that they're ready for. Or the high chair example, don't place your child in the high chair 
without, you know, strapping them in or, or, or some sort of barrier. It's allowing your child to get to the point where they can climb into the high chair on their own. Um, because when we do it for them, even that small step, they're, they're sort of less safe because they didn't figure out those boundaries on their own. And so if they're not ready for something like chemicals, my chemicals sort of in a sort of a flip, I think um, a lot of people keep them like under the kitchen sink, you know, I keep them in the highest cabinet that I can. Um, because my baby and toddler can't access them then. And so it's, it's making it maybe a little bit more inconvenient for me, but it's making the spaces that are accessible to them safer. Um, and, and we don't give them access to things that they're not ready for. And we do that by preparing our space. You're right. It is more work. And I gave the example of the makeup drawer because that is a drawer that is off limits for my kids. They both seem very attracted to it, of course, because it's off limits, but I'm not going to put a lock on it. I'm going to teach them that they're not allowed in it. They're not even allowed to explore it. And that is, that is really good practice for me as a parent to practice setting boundaries. And it's really good practice for my kids to in learning that there are boundaries and it's not, it's not easy and it's not convenient and it would be much more simple just to put a lock on it and not have to deal with it. But I think that those little things give us practice in putting structure into place in our homes. It definitely does. And and I don't want to give the impression in a Montessori home that there's no um, limit setting because there definitely is um, limits. It's freedom within limits. And part of those limits are the environment that you set. Um, and part of it is, is recognizing what needs to be a limit and what am I doing because it feels uncomfortable for me or it feels like extra work for me. Um, because sometimes we feel that like that exploration and sort of that natural drive to explore their environment is somehow bad. It's, it's inconvenient for us if my child takes out all the pots in my kitchen or, um, you know, digs through something else. But it's, is it necessary for my child's development? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, depending on the situation. And so um, if you need to set a limit, that's okay. And it's, it's setting that limit with respect and it's setting that limit um, in a way that feels okay for you, but also is clear to them. So an example is I don't, you know, you can't climb on top of the table. So we say, you know, your feet stay on the table, you can climb on the climber. Or, um, you know, we can go outside and climb, your feet need to stay on the table or stay on the floor. So giving them an alternative activity that still meets that need to climb or whatever that developmental need is that the child is exactly. having. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's about, it's about recognizing that what your child is not doing is not bad or inappropriate. It's it, they're trying to meet a need that they have. And so we sort of just flip that on our head. How can we provide the opportunity to do something um, that meets that need? That's one can as convenient as it can be for us and is safe for them. Right. This makes me think a couple years ago I had, I worked with a mom coaching a mom on some ideas around setting up her house with her son and her son was about nine months old and she told me she's like I don't know he doesn't seem interested in toys all he wants to do is climb on the vents on the floor that blow air and just touch them (laughs) and I said that's awesome because that is free and (laughs) it's so it's there's so much sensation there you know he's touching the vents and feeling that metal and the the different um 
I don't know. That's it's a there's a lot of sensory input on those, and then the the air coming out of it as well. And I think that sometimes we try to steer kids away from things like that, thinking, "Oh, that's not a toy. That's not for you." When there are so many things just within the home naturally that can really pique the interest of our kids and help to meet some of those developmental needs. Exactly, and so that's sort of we don't need to buy anything to meet that need. We just need to let that child explore. We need to give the child the time and the space and the freedom to do what they're being driven to do. It's not about like, ooh, I think they like the air thing. Let's buy them something that sort of stimulates that same sort of sensory experience. Just let them do it with their with your air vent. You know, it's it's there's just let them explore your home. And and most of the time, children in, in those young ages, especially, they're interested in what you're doing. You know, they're interested in washing your tables. You know, they're interested in watching you cook or helping you cook. They're interested in your makeup for a reason because they see you putting on your makeup every morning and they want to be like you. They want to know what it is you're doing. And so, it's not about them trying to inconvenience you or otherwise just like sort of run chaotically through your life. Um, it's about connecting with you as a person and understanding what it means to be human and understanding what it means to be in your family. And so they're sort of learning all of those rules as we talked about, like sort of un- like through that absorbent mind, they're just sort of absorbing it all by being in your family. And so you create a space where they can just be. And sometimes the more we put in our space, the less they can just be. Right. And we need to move past this mentality of thinking that this is for kids or this isn't for kids and try to wipe from our language the the saying of, oh, that's not for kids. That's not for kids. Um, of course, there are some things that are just absolutely not for kids, but I think that we probably say it too much as adults, that there are lots of things that we can make for kids and for adults and include our kids into. Exactly. Yeah. There's very few examples I can think of of things that um, are specifically off limits for my children um, at all. They might take a different form for the child. You know, I my daughter is very into cooking. And so she's almost four, so three, but she's been cooking now since she was probably about 18 months old, like very um, intentionally preparing food. And so does she have a you know maybe a, a different sized knife? Yes, but she's using a knife. Um, so it's it's not about restricting access to things. It's about how do we sort of adapt our our space to fulfill the need that our child is meeting instead of saying no, this is inherently not for you because you're too little. So if anyone out there listening is interested in learning more about your philosophies and Montessori parenting, do you have any resources that you would recommend? I do. So I teach courses um, about creating spaces in your home if you're interested in creating a Montessori environment or getting your children um, cooking in your your home or um, just Montessori play in general. Um, And you can find more of those on my website, which is thecavanaughreport.com. Great. And I'll put the links in the show notes as well. Thank you, Nicole. This has been really enlightening. And I hope that you um, will be available to answer some questions in the comments on the show notes too. I'll tag you on those if any of the listeners have any questions. I would love to. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you have questions and comments, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 109. You can find links to the show notes there as well. If you want to stay in touch with Nicole, go to thecavanaughreport.com. 
Kavanaugh spelled K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H. That's thekavanaughreport.com. As always, I appreciate your support. If you could take a second and leave a rating or review in iTunes, your help is greatly appreciated. Have a good one.